So this is Crazy Damn Canadians, episode number four. Yep. And we're already on. I double-checked, which is great, because I hate that awkward start. Yep. And we're sitting here with Don Willimont, philanthropist, businessman. <laughs> business yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go with the business guy. Hunter. Yeah, sure. I'll throw that in there. And, and animal lover. Sure. Like a nature lover. You know, Na- nature like lover. A, yeah, outdoor enthusiast, let's call it that. So, yeah. Well, there's a contradiction there, and that's going to be part of the conversation. For some a, people, they think there's a contradiction. Yeah, there is. There's an implied, there's a, there's an inherent or an implied contradiction. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so that's what we'll flesh that out. But uh, I guess the first question we always ask everybody is, where are you from? You're in Prince George. How did you end up here? Yeah. Um, well, I'm actually from Regina, Saskatchewan, but to be honest, I was born in Vancouver. Uh, I was born in Vancouver. And we moved to a little town called Pilot Butte, Saskatchewan, which is just a little bedroom community outside of Regina, uh, when I was like three years old. So, um, and I think there has always been this tug for me to come west. And I don't know if it's just a kismet kind of thing that you know, it's you're, you're from BC, and so you always look west. Um, but I grew up in the prairies and uh, and uh, lived in Regina. My dad died when I was ten. My birth father died when I was ten. So we left Pilot Butte and moved into, just into Regina. Went to school there. Um, and, you know, the, the rest is kind of like everybody else. You go to school, you have aspirations. I wandered through university. I did some reserve stuff, trying to find yourself. Fell into the car business at uh, the end of 1992. And uh, that's kind of where I've been ever since. You know, I've been treading water in the car business for 30 years. When I met my wife, you got to flash forward way later in life. I meet my wife just about 20 years ago now. We got together and one of, I did took I took a brief hiatus in 1994 and I moved to Kelowna. So I curbed cars on the side, worked in a sawmill, hated my existence and worked for a landscaping company. And um, but I loved I just loved the BC vibe. And then I went back and continued to work for the the dealer I was working with initially. Anyway, um, I've always I, I just fell in love with the Okanagan. So my wife and I, one of our first holidays, uh, the first year we were together, we came to the Okanagan. She hadn't really traveled much in BC. And it was that series of, of holidays that every year, my son, my wife, every year, we make the pilgrimage west. And at some point, uh, not long after my wife and I got married, we had this 10-year plan, like we're gonna move to the Okanagan. That would be the land of milk and honey. That would, that would represent everything that we love, food and wine and the outdoors. and and then that just sort of didn't happen. And I just kind of, you know, you get comfortable in the life that you're living and uh, time marches on. And I was coming up on, I was just about 48 years old now. That was, that's pivotal for me on a personal level. My dad died when he was 48. And I would tell you that moving through my life, there is a big, there is a big line across that on a calendar way in the future. And my, and my mortality question put itself in front of me, like from the time I was 10 all the way forward. I was, I was convinced that like at 48, I'm not going to be here anymore. So then, you know, now I'm 48 and there's this 10 year plan and we're not anywhere close to it. And so my wife had at one point, she was pushing me on it and uh, I'd sort of abandoned it at, you know, 45 or 46. And then I don't know what it was one day, I just realized I was working lots of evenings, long days. And I said, man, there's got to be a better way to make a life for myself. And I just said, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. So I, you know, a, a couple of uh, phone calls and a few car connections later, and I run into Craig Wood 
and uh, happens to be a you know a Wheaton partner, and I you know have some connections into that world. Our worlds collide through a uh, Fred Nelson, who you know uh, quite well, and uh, we have some mutual friends that we don't know are mutual friends who speak uh, well for me and ensure I get a job, and then I kind of broke it to my wife that I had some opportunity, but it wasn't in the land of Shangri-La and Okanagan and wine. There's this wonderful place called Prince George. And my wife is, if you know my wife, my wife is a brilliant woman. She had a really good career uh, involved in politics and political government, or pardon me, in, in, uh, in the Saskatchewan government. In the political arena, she had a great career going. And um, she was not disturbable at that time. And I blindsided her with this, let's move west. But she just said, you know what, if we don't do it now, I said, if we don't do it, I'm never doing it. I either do it now while I'm young enough to reinvent myself. And if this doesn't work, if it all crashes and doesn't work out and I'm, you know, I can't pull this off, then I'm young enough to figure something out. And I said, but I'm asking you to give up a lot. And she's like, yeah, but it's our 10 year plan that's way overdue. So let's do it. And she's like, yeah, okay, so it's Prince George. It's not, it's not Kelowna. So to say that, I mean, I'm not trying to besmirch Prince George. My wife doesn't feel that way now, but I can tell you this was not the star destination. So then we land here, and one of the commitments I made, and I think this is the, this is the thing that I think for me, um, this is the biggest, it's not just the geography that I changed. I made a promise to myself that, you know, I was interested in hunting and, and those things, but it was like a, it was two or three weekends a year that I would do it in Saskatchewan. I was super selfish as well with my time, like incredibly selfish with my, my time. It was my time. I was not community oriented. I wasn't. I wasn't involved in things outside of work. Whatever the dealership did was fine. There's a you know, there's a few little moments there where you where you give, but it always felt obligatory um, because it was part of the job, right? Uh, but it wasn't something I felt passionate about. And I said, I don't know what it is, but when I get to this place, because I'm not working, you know, evenings anymore. We're not opening. In the, in the car business in the evenings. I've got more time. I came here for a quality of life. I have to do something that's not about me anymore. And I said, that is it, that has got to change. And not long after I got here, I fell into Spruce City Wildlife as a member. And then they, uh, I, you know, I, I started to kind of uh, interact with the hunting community. That was my way in. It always was when I sold cars, I'm kind of a, I'm like a city cowboy. I like to hunt. You know, I had lots of when I was selling uh, vehicles. I really connected with people from small town Saskatchewan. Um, we had hunting and and that outdoorsy kind of love. That was a thing that I dug. Uh, I liked the way they made their living. Um, and coming to Prince George, it was uh, it was like a big blue collar town for me in, in all the right ways. Not that there isn't white collar living and and all of those things, but there was a real resonance with the people. They're super grounded, and it just made it for me fundamentally that much easier like I dig these people like they are speaking my language regardless of you know whether that's somebody that owns a logging company or somebody that works in forestry or they worked at the coffee shop we all had this we had lots of things in common and I just dug the vibe and I threw myself like way in deep into the pool so here's a feather in your guys cap I'm trying to trying to sell my wife like on this whole it's going to be great when we get there Prior to coming here, we trip across this Facebook page. Hell yeah, Prince George. Because Fred's like, well, you know, to give you guys a feel. So we jumped into to that before we got there. And I'm like, there's like 30 some thousand people on this thing or almost 30,000 people. I'm like, how many people are in Prince George? And Rena's like, I don't know, 75, 80? 
I'm like, that's crazy. But we yeah. started our way into Prince George and that whole vibe and that whole evolution of me thinking like, I think I can really become involved in a community like this. Is there such a cool vibe seeing it through that window? Um, and when we got here, it was like, it was like that in spades. And it was like, it was tenfold better than that. The people were just like lights out, in, like engaging. The community was giving. Um, it was, it was such a simple, it, it has been, and it continues to be. It's a simple place to live. You know, I live in the heart. I love it. I love, you know, I'm, I hated my neighbors, not hated them. I just, I'm not a real, as a car guy outside of the car business, I'm not super like schmoozy, talky. I'm kind of keep to myself kind of thing. I like my neighbors and I like to visit with them. And, you know, uh, I like all the involvements that I have. And uh, I, I like to be more involved than less involved. And I'm probably a bigger social animal in that I'm more integrated in this community than I've, I ever thought I would be. And if, and anybody that knows me from Saskatchewan, what a 100% looks and like, who is this dude? Because that is absolutely not who you were, you know, for the last 20 some years in Regina. You've never been that guy. So there's my story. Here we are. <laughs> what a, a major paradigm shift in your life to be living in Saskatchewan and have your wife support through all of it to make yeah. the move west. Yeah. And how prophetic to actually have the mindset of wanting to give back and and play a large role in the community before you even arrived because lots of people once they do arrive in Prince George it's almost contagion where they see how many people in this community give back and and are so generous with their time and and that wears off on people but for you to already have that vision of how you wanted to live your life before even arriving in Prince George is remarkable I think that one of the things I observed when you came is you were working, of course, with a different uh, dealership for yeah. a while. They're owned by yeah. the same individual, Craig, but you immediately took that dealership and did something exceptional. You guys did some projects and got involved in some philanthropy that had a massive impact, yeah. used your connections and the resources you had to do stuff that was bigger like that spca auction oh i know the man cave thing that was great to be i mean fred drove that bus but it was it was the synergy and that's the first time that you know you and i met yeah and, and there was a great synergy there but that's the first time like that was jaw-dropping to me to watch that whole community and all the prizes and ed just all of the people riffing off of each other and feeding off of each other's energy like how do we make it it wasn't just us it was everybody we partnered with you know, so I met Dave, and then I met you, and that, that thing just grew into this. It turned into a bit of a monster. But then you see all those people show up, and it's just like, man, I, I, you got to love, I, and I loved Prince George Formal. Like, it's a big dress-up night, and everybody's in, you know, blue jeans, if you're lucky, a colored shirt, their best yeah. browning hoodie, <laughs> and they're, dro they're dropping thousands of dollars, you know, to, to help the SBCA. I was just, I was just spectacularly, like... Slackjawed, dumbfounded, wow! And for people listening, it was basically just uh, we put together an online auction, got people to sponsor stuff, but ended up bringing in uh, uh, celebrities yep. um, from the hunting community. Um, you brought in that man eater, was it? Or man, man, uh, man tracker was there. We had the impersonators from Vegas. We had the guys from uh, uh, one of the A and E programs. The Rick and Sam. Uh, what there, what was, I can't Gosh. even remember their name. The, the people that did uh, the restoration of uh, rest, American yeah, restoration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing got so big over yeah. the top. It was just so much bigger than what it'd be expected for doing an online yeah. auction. Yeah. And that was kind of how I got to know you. So I think it's important that people understand because they're going to be like, well, who's Don Willimont? What are you talking about? What's he done? I'm like, well, that's just the first 
thing that we did and the first thing you got involved with and that's now sense has almost become standard for you you, you got connected with hospice yep. and immediately put together the bucket list and so yep. why don't you tell us a little bit about that what was that well i think the bucket list was that was more the brainchild of of donna flood and the people at at hospice we just decided to partner with them because it was a good initiative but i mean that allowed people to basically put you know a number of wish lists uh together things that they would want to do some big and some small um, and that uh, at one point culminated uh, in the first year. Uh, we had a local school teacher um, who had a tumor. Dirk. And Dirk, yeah. And, uh, but their, their life dream was to try to get the family to uh, Disney World. And uh, we were able to make that happen and raise some money and, and send them on that trip. But there was a whole bunch of people uh, outside of just them that benefited from that. But that was, a, I mean, that was a great coming together. But that's evolved, and then we turn that into the Random Acts of Kindness and uh, in the next year. And it's been projects like that that have just continued to evolve, whether it's that or whether it's, you know, Salvation Army challenges or, uh, you know, eventually it evolved for me through Spruce City to community cleanups. There's just been, I, I think we're always looking for an opportunity. You can, I've worked for some big dealer groups um, in my existence, and some of them write big checks. But the big checks, I, I guess those are great, right? Because the money goes to some other purpose. But the things that have always resonated with me the most as a business um, were things where it required a level of volunteerism by the people that worked in the, for the company. Your actual boots on the ground, your hands getting dirty doing things. Those things to me seem to have, um, they had more stays, a, a resonance and more, they, they seemed to last, the impact lasted longer and it was more meaningful. So, you know, we pivoted into more things that would be, uh, have our people out doing that kind of stuff. Not just, here's a check and, you know, so we can, we can feel good about what we did. Uh, we actually know that we went and did something. And I think that w where that's important is when people, uh, every interview we've done so far, and I just know this lifelong, everybody, one of the first things they talk about Prince George is the fact that we have this amazing give back community. Well, that's the reason why because there's so many events that involve people that people engage yeah. with. It's not just a community that write checks. Yeah. It's a community that volunteers and shows up. So if you just wrote a check, uh, then I'm not meeting Dawn and synergizing and creating the bucket list. Yeah. And when you say, well, it was hospice's idea, hospice comes up with a thousand ideas, but unless they can get some money and someone who's got ideas, and then you say you've got these connections, yeah. then the event takes off. Yeah. And so that's where people like you are critical. And so you you both write checks when necessary, but it's more this team and collaboration of people in Prince George that create this perception and energy that we get stuff done and do stuff in a unique and fun way. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why, you know, I really do value people like you in, in this community and uh, think that's an important thing for people to know about you and what makes you exceptional. It's you engage with everything you do and take part and enhance it 10 times over because you got a crazy brain going what about this yeah. and you're willing to talk to other people going what about this and you end up with way funner ideas so kudos to you on that and one of the first associations or nonprofits you would have gotten involved with in Prince George would have been the Spruce City Wildlife, wildlife. yeah absolutely could you maybe let some of the listeners and viewers know what exactly this association does because there's a lot of people out there that have heard of it but may not know 
what exactly they do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, well, Spruce City, uh, you know, ostensibly, and it's been around for, it's got a long history in Prince George, um, but it's a, it's a hunting and angling, um, you know, club. I mean, I, I guess maybe that's a bit reductive, but it's a fishing and hunting club. But what it has always had, um, it has always had a fairly significant footprint in conservation. Now, that's evolved provincially uh, with lots of clubs where uh, interactions with wildlife and some of the initiatives that you do on the wildlife side, they have a lot more barriers and impediments um, just because of regulations in the ministry. Um, but the fishery side, uh, they've always had, they had a very robust fisheries program for a long time. Um, over the years, I mean, membership in, in, a, in a lot of clubs has probably declined. And when I joined the club in 2015, um, you know, membership was, it, it wasn't terrific. Um, but there was definitely an appetite for it, but they needed, they wanted to do more. They needed to do more. And we had some great people. Steve Hamilton and Dustin Slander uh, joined the executive and they really grabbed that salmon program that had been sort of abandoned and really put a lot of energy into, into revitalizing that program and working with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, to, to, to not just get money, but to start to expand um, the capacity of the hatchery. And we've continued to work at that for five years. And now, you know, this year that culminates in, there's probably almost half a million dollars that's been spent. That is the most uh, scientifically uh, uh, up-to-date. And, and as a matter of fact, you, you cannot get better technology in a volunteer-run hatchery anywhere in the province. So, and that and that's just from that club, right? And I, I, you know, that's happening under people's noses, but that, that facility has done remarkable things. That team, um, the salmon enhancement team that, um, have done some things that have just been absolutely astounding. And when you look at things like Big Bar and, and things like that, that have uh, put some real downward pressure on salmon population, particularly in the upper Fraser watershed, um, that moved from a place where we, you know, try to grow three or 4,000 fish so we can, let them go and have a public education, uh, I guess, uh, capacity. Now we've transferred that to an enhancement or an emergency stock enhancement program. So the idea is to expand capacity uh, to hopefully at some point start to be able to birth um, some higher returns in salmon populations in the upper part of the Fraser River. So I, that's sort of where Spruce City is. Um, it's it, it has it does have a wild uh, like a hunting and and and, uh, and fishing side in that there are. You know, we do, you know, public lectures and um, there's engagement pieces uh, through core education. Um, when we don't have COVID, there's things like hatchery tours that, that talk about, you know, fish, wildlife, habitat, uh, things like that. But right now, the, so right now the hatchery is all about salmon. And as COVID hopefully starts to dispense a little bit, we'll get back to some of the, the wildlife things and stuff that I think we've been missing in that specific club. But And is that where your podcast manifested from because when I was researching and preparing for this interview, I was on their Facebook page and that's where I found your podcast. And so I listened to the latest episode yeah. and I found it extraordinarily fascinating because there was a gentleman and his wife from Vanderhoof who encountered the grizzly. Yeah. Yeah. Which Camp is Hill. yeah. Yeah, which was just such a, a sensational story in terms of A they're lucky that it it panned out the way it did absolutely yeah. but b like what a fear that lots of people have not just hunters but backpackers and hikers or even just living in prince george in the north there's always a possibility of an encounter always so is that where the podcast idea came from or is that something else um well it's it sort of where it, it was born out of a couple of things last year my wife and i traveled to namibia 
And just prior to that, I was doing the cut banks and I was looking for something different than music to listen to. And I watched Steve Rinella's program, The Meat Eater, uh, religiously. Uh, and somebody, I, I'd never listened to the podcast. So I downloaded uh, a few episodes of that particular podcast and then The Hunting Collective with Ben O'Brien, who's one of the, the Meat Eater crew. And I started to listen to them. And then my wife and I traveled all over Namibia driving in a vehicle for three weeks. And instead of music, my she was fine with it. We listened to Meat Eater podcasts for weeks on end. And when I came back, I'm like, okay, there's a different kind of conversation. And I think what compelled me about Stephen Ranella and, and I think compels most people, I know lots of people that don't get hunting, but then they tell me that, but they get hunting as they see it through his eyes and his approach. Because it's really about proximity to your food. It's, it's about finding sustainable, healthy, organic protein. Um, it's about taking responsibility for, if you're, if you're gonna be a meat eater, then you can, you can have that 10 times removed uh, proximity from, I'll just take it in the saran wrap at the grocery store, or you can take some ownership and some responsibility for it. Anyway, I think that that conversation really resonated with me and that, that, that idea resonated. But the more I listened to the conversations he was having, he was talking about conservation concerns, about ethics and hunting. Um, there, was just a, there was a great conversation going on. The more you listen to it though, what I realized in the context of BC is we have much like Alaska or Washington or Colorado or some of these states that have robust, vibrant uh, fish and game populations um, and opportunity for, you know, whether it's tourism or hunting or, or, or whatever. Um, there's also not a representative conversation that's, I, I didn't want a conversation that was just about how to hunt, where to hunt. You know, I wanted a conversation about why we hunt. I wanted a conversation about the issues that face, uh, you know, fisheries in, in British Columbia, the issues that face um, being a hunter in a world that is, is struggling to understand it and, and sometimes sees it as an anachronism. Um, I wanted a conversation that talked about the role of hunter as a conservationist. Um, I think there was a bigger con conversation to have, but I wanted it all contextualized around a BC experience. And I knew that's what was missing. There's lots of great podcasts that I listen to that have BC roots, but they're not talking about those, those specific things. So we wanted to tackle some uncomfortable discussions, managing wolves, uh, some of the uh, forestry applications that go on in ter terms of habitat degradation. Uh, we wanted to tackle some really, really tough stuff, uh, the gun ban and things like that. Um, so we just thought, let, let's have some of the more fierce conversations. Uh, and you know, we just worked our way through them. So I think that one of the things I'd like to clarify right now, I mean, those are all big conversations and they're two hour episodes to discuss yep. how to manage wolves. But the bigger question, I think, as people are listening to this is someone who's very well known for being part of the hunting community. But you're also what a lot of people would not assume if you're not a hunter, you would just assume that hunters just run out and kind of try to shoot anything. And, you know, you get that redneck jacked up yep. truck image in your head. But the truth of it is, um, uh, most of the hunters I know care more about wildlife and conservation than the non-hunters who are happy to eat the saran-wrapped meat yep. and complain about the people hunting. So I'd love to hear your viewpoint, just kind of a summary on the fact that you are a conservationist. You are someone that deeply cares. And the hunting community knows that the money that pays conservation comes from the hunting licenses, ironically. Yep. That's how we fund it. So what's your thoughts on that debate, that subject? You're a hunter, 
but you're a conservationist and just dumb it down for someone who had have no idea how that's possible. Well, I, I guess if you if people tend to reduce hunting um, to its end, it always comes down to the to the pull of the trigger and that something dies, and that's the inherent contradiction. You we say we're conservationists and you love you love wildlife and yet you kill them, right? And we don't harvest. Just to to be clear, that's language that I've I've played around with and I'm not comfortable with. We kill animals. That's what we do. Um, now there's there's different levels of that that I think people struggle with. Um, if I tell people that I hunt a deer, it makes fundamental sense to them because they see that you know that that's easy to understand. You you hunt a deer, you eat the deer. I get that. Um, if I tell people I go fish for salmon, they're like, fine, I, I eat salmon. If I told somebody they eat a bear, they're like, oh, that's absolutely wrong. It's abhorrent, but I eat the bear too, right? Um, I think that where, where, where people struggle sometimes is part of it's on, on that we kill, and sometimes it's what we kill. Um, you can't eat everything that you shoot. And not every, every population of wildlife requires management, whether we want to accept that or not. We cannot leave Mother Nature to its own design because it's, it's frankly, it's not sustainable. You got almost 12,000 wildlife uh, across the board, 12,000 animals are killed uh, in some way, shape or form in some version of a wildlife collision in British Columbia every year. And if you don't manage those densities, if you don't manage those population units, there are certain parts of the province where that has you know, it has issues on people that have those collisions. It has issues on people that are in agriculture. Um, it has, uh, it, it, there's all kinds of fallout when we don't manage wildlife. We just can't set it aside and say, let's just let nature take its course. We've disturbed, there's 750,000 kilometers of forestry roads in this province. We've disturbed the land base so much and degraded habitat through commerce. And it's not, it wasn't wretched villainy that did it. It's just the nature of industry. You have to go out. If I want to read a book, I, that book's made of paper. I got to cut a tree down to get it. Well, guess what we do in British Columbia? That's not wrong. That's we have people that are employed in that. Um, if if I want to make a living and I work in mining, there's going to be some land disturbance. If we have a pipeline that employs a lot of people that I applaud and I need, but it doesn't change the fact that it you know cuts a big hole in the ground and it knocks some trees down and it disturbs the land base. Well, that's habitat for wildlife. Every time we we shrink it. You've, you're asking the same amount of animals to occupy a slightly smaller space. It's not fair to them. Animals require, and they, they have required in the industrial age, they require our intervention. We're way past the part where we can excuse ourselves from the responsibility. Where the hunter comes in, that's what the hunter does. It fulfills society's obligation to make sure that we're managing for, the, for, for that wildlife population to be, pop, to, to be healthy, to be sustainable, and all we're looking at as consumptive users, whether we're First Nations, whether we're resident hunters or guides or tourism, what we're looking at is we want to make sure that there's enough of those animals on the land base and we're going to harvest a surplus, the surplus. If there's a deficit or if there is a conservation concern, the hunter will be the first person to say, we shouldn't be hunting that anymore. And you've seen that in some debates that I won't get into right now, but you see that in debates when people disagree with certain um, kinds of policies that get rolled out, whether it's harvesting cows and calves. Even if there was a legitimate scientific reason, the visceral and the knee-jerk reaction is we shouldn't be doing that. But hunters are saying that not for the wrong reasons. They're saying it because they're like, hey, I don't, I don't necessarily understand. The science has got to make sense. And that's got to be a conservation reason, not just to give me an opportunity to pull the trigger. And I know some hunters, myself included, 
in, in Region 7, which is where we live here in the Yamanika, I won't harvest a moose here. I'm just, I'm very reluctant to do it. I'll buy the tag, I'll buy the tag, but I have no interest. I will not put one day, I will not put one kilometer into hunting a moose. Why? Because the population for, for me for moose is too low. Yeah. But I'm 100% willing, I buy a tag for elk every year, I buy a tag for moose every year, I buy both deer tags, I buy a lynx tag, a cougar tag, a wolverine tag, both black bear tags. I don't fill all of those things. I usually shoot a bear or two bears. I will shoot a lynx. I might shoot a deer. And all of that stuff ends up in my freezer and I eat it. And that's just the reality of it. And so some people will struggle with that. And I, 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 I respectfully, will, we're gonna to have to agree to disagree. Um, I will harvest all of those animals, to, to use the word that they prefer. Uh, my word would be I'll kill those animals and I will consume them or I will kill those animals because there's a fundamental requirement on me to do that because they need to be managed. And part of management means that they, you have to take some of those animals off the land base. Those are tough conversations to have. Um, but I mean, and I think that that's the part that I, I think that's part of where that podcast comes from. It's because I know that's a tough conversation and I know there's not always an appetite for it. And this is called the cut banks. Cut, the cut banks conversations. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's so a, people can look that up. Yeah. Look that up and have a listen because I'm the only person at this table who's never shot a gun before and who has never hunted before. But hearing what you just said, that that meat is going in your freezer and it's going to be consumed, that resonates so strongly with me and probably a lot of other people that listen to this because when I see a post from Dave and what you shot an animal earlier this summer and in that Facebook post mentioned that this is going in your freezer and it's going to provide food for nine to 10 months. I look at that and I say, awesome. I think it's a, a media relations nightmare when you see these videos go viral of a hunter in, in North Ontario riding a moose. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all hunters get lumped into that category of what they are, where it's so not true. And and, and that's where I think the, the debate comes in. But when's the last time you saw a news article come out saying five hunters go out, three of them successfully shoot an animal, they feed their family for a year? You don't see that. <laughs> yeah. You only see the negative. You would only ever see. And I, I think that that's been one of the challenges. And, you know, most of my um, principal engagement in this community is through the, the hunting community. So um, you, I'm not sure if you're, you know, Mark um, Newdorf, one of my hunting partners, one of my uh, colleagues at work, I'll just give a an outside of uh, an outside of conservation, but a good example. You know, you've got a young girl in Kamloops who has a, a rare form of cancer. She can only get a certain kind of treatment. Um, it's not a, it's not covered by MSP. So Mark goes into we have a number of Facebook groups and we have a large hunting community. He put he he says to me uh, last week. He said, you know what? I'm going to reach out to all of our fellows in the hunting community. We got to raise some money for this girl. Hopefully we can get ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Well, as of today, that's over almost two hundred thousand dollars. And as of yesterday, out of all the social media, and that's the hunting community that drove that whole bus. Hunting celebrities from around Canada uh, and now into the U.S. have been donating stuff. But that's hunters and anglers. Some of them giving money I know they don't have, um, and buying things I know they don't need. But because it's somebody in our community that that had that in, that that specific point of need. We reached into that community and no other one to generate that money. And there it was, you know, as it was required. And these are the same people that people would castigate because they decided to go out and shoot a moose one day. Um, not entirely fair, but there's a version of it that, yeah, I, more often it becomes so reductive. We focus on the, when we look at people that, po a person that 
that takes an animal out of season, a person that takes an animal and doesn't eat it, a person that shoots an animal, keeps the horns and throws the body out. Hunters, those aren't hunters. They're poachers to us. They're lawbreakers to us. They're not ethical to us. They're not part of our, you know, if we're all in one boat, they are not in the boat. They're in a boat. It's just not our boat, right? And we're, we're as equally as appalled at that kind of behavior as the people that are in the anti-hunting movement or people that, you know, frankly don't have an opinion. But when they look at the hunting world, they usually see that. What they don't look for is what just happened. You know, I, I was so blown away. I was, you know, actually you know, almost in tears when Mark was telling us yesterday that the provincial government overturned their decision to, to cover that surgery. So now this family has not only the, the surgery covered from the from just from 4000 people getting together on a hunting pit based platform and buying a bunch of stuff to help somebody. All of that social media pressure turned that decision over. And now this family's going to have, you know, probably over $200,000 that they can use because they're going to be without work while they, you know, are w- living in the States for six living months States, while she goes through this yeah, treatment. Yeah, while she convalesces. Yeah. Those stories don't get told very often. Um, and I, we're hoping, particularly in 2021 with the podcast, we'll get to, a chance to tell more of those stories and dig deeper. In, and, you know, we're just scratching the surface of some of the issues that are going on in fish and wildlife and conservation. Maybe that's episode number five, Mark Newdorf on how he got $260,000 raised for this little girl. I would 100% have that conversation. It was absolutely remarkable. And that is Mark and his wife, Tally, and you know, they had a, a, some great support. But uh, that's a, that to me, that if you wanna talk about community, compassion, character, um, you want a, a person that's a Canadian hero, my hunting partner, Mark, he'd be one of them. And so. those are the stories that need to be shared and told and spread rather than these generalizations that you see far too often. They're, and they tend to be ubiquitous on social media. Like, what was the name of that lion in Africa? Cecil? Cecil, The yeah. famous lion. And then you get some guy in the States that goes and shoots that lion. And then it blows up worldwide on social media channels. And all of a sudden, the comment feeds and threads are saying, hunters are assholes where it's so much of a generalization lumping all hunters into that category yep. from some guy, a dentist that goes to Africa. Yep. Yeah, that's a tough debate, but even that comes down to the fact that in those countries where people are literally starving to death, the tags that they sell to hunt that one lion who's usually a mature lion towards the end of life is with the requirements. I'm not saying that was the case with Cecil. But it's that money that pays for the conservation in that country so that they can prevent the poaching to decimate the population so there's nothing left. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, so it's a tough call, but it's always more complex than people are first thinking. I, I, I think it always is. Um, you know, I think hunting hunting and fishing is complex. I think um, issues in community philanthropy. Like Dave and I have done, a lot, well, just, just to shift gears, when you look at community cleanups, it's fundamentally wrong to litter. Right to me, it's just I, I, it's pretty simple. You have you have a garbage can in front of your house. We have weekly pickup for a reason. We have places to take recycling. We have landfills. It's pretty simple, pretty easy to understand. There's signs all over the planet that say if you litter on this highway or in this street, you'll be fined. I think we're fairly well conditioned on what is and isn't acceptable. Dave, you've been with me on some of these cleanups. I mean, we'll abandon cars and trailers and boats and household garbage and you name it, and we'll put it wherever we can because we don't want to pay a six or a $20 tipping fee at a, at, a, at a refuse station. It absolutely galls me that people do that. And yet here we are, and we're gonna go after, like in the, in the spring and in the summer, it'll be week after week, we'll be out there 
cleaning up people's stuff and it doesn't matter how many times we have these conversations doesn't matter how many videos we put out there some yahoo is always going to go against the grain and just going to continue to dump i always find it interesting that you know no matter how well you think you facilitated the conversation uh what no matter how much visibility sometimes you put on it it all continues to happen right but that's one of the important things i think for listeners to understand is that you have not through spruce city wildlife although they've assisted and partnered not through Wood Wheaton, although they usually provide funds for the tipping fees if we can't get them waived. But you on your own will go out hiking on Friday evening, researching sites around Prince George and then get teams of volunteers, which I have come and joined you on and and arranged a quite substantial one cleaning up the heart scales, which was yep. an awesome, fun yep. project. But you've done that week in, week out throughout the summer. Yeah. Um, and it's not your burden alone. Why? Why do you end up doing that so often? Um, well, <laughs> particularly since being here, like, remember, the, the, we, here's where it starts. When I was in Regina, the one core community project that we did, uh, the, the central core in north central Regina, is the worst of the worst neighborhoods, you know. Um, but every year, the Ford dealership that I was at, they would get, you know, a major disposal company. A, a huge host we'd have a hundred volunteers and we'd clean up you know 20 blocks by 20 blocks of the worst part of the city and it was one day and it was seven or eight hours of crazy volunteerism and I just loved how I felt and I always thought but this is this should be scalable this shouldn't be a I mean it, it's great that they do it I'm not detracting Trevor is a terrific uh, local philanthropist from Regina and, I, and he's who inspired me to start doing this but I realized that it needs to be done more than once a year much like much like giving food just at Christmas time, because that's the time it's top of mind. To me, you know, it should be top of mind 24-7 that you don't litter and that our backcountry matters. And the coolest part, and, and, and I, Dave, you've done this with me. To me, there's been times where I've come home and, and a lot of my hunting cohorts, and this is, you know, another thing that doesn't get told. I get pictures sent to me all the time from guys that are hunting. They're not, they just send them to me. They're not posting them on a page. And I'm not posting my truckload of crap that I take out or a bag of you know, uh, pop cans and bottles and tires I throw in, I might be the only person that knows that that tire or that bag of garbage is there because it's 150 kilometers from Prince George and a million people could drive by that in the course of five years and never stop. But I feel so jacked when I throw that tire in the truck and I know that I did that, right? I'm trying to turn this back to as close to the way, you know, I'd like to remember it. We've got a road, I gotta live with that but I don't need to live with the tire. I don't need to live with that can on the side of the road. And I'd rather get it back to as close to the way as mother nature intended it. And it just feels super good to do it. That's my motivation. I don't care if anybody can see it. We've yanked stuff out of the bush. I know for a fact, no one knows is there and they would never know is there. And that makes it even better to me. Like I feel infinitely better about the stuff that we remove that you can't see than the stuff that you can. That, that that's it it comes right down to that mother nature deserves better somebody's got to do it also also the fact that if you didn't remove that who the hell knows how long it would be there for it could be there for the next hundred years or longer you would never know we took tires out um, off the willow kale this year I have no I know that the tree roots had grown over them but we took off probably enough to do an entire tractor trailer uh, and and a trailer like there had to be 30 or 40 of these giant tires we used a tractor we had to get into the mud we were in a swamp most of the tires were buried in the mud you could drive by it a hundred times and never know where they were there 
but everybody was high-fiving and, and just could not, we were all so stoked that we did it um, just because we knew it was there. You know, it's that if a tree fell in the forest, you know, and no one was around, did, you know, did it make a noise? Well, if the garbage was, it's been in the forest for forever. Does anybody know it's there? It doesn't matter. So Once you, I do, I have to do something about it. You started another project. I'm, I'm curious if you can give me an update. One of the things when we did the um, the heart scales cleanup was a really big project. We took out um, thousands and thousands of pounds of trash. It yep. took probably 40 or 50 volunteers. It took five or six large pieces of heavy-duty equipment in a full day. It was one of the coolest, biggest projects yeah. I've ever been part of. It was a fantastic project, but it's a culmination of doing that. We were so frustrated as you're cleaning it. You're like, I cannot believe the overwhelming amount of stuff that's coming yeah. out and realizing you probably wouldn't even get 100% of it. At the end of it, you commented, the only way we're going to stop this is if we kind of get some cameras up and you were discussing getting volunteers, getting funding, getting cameras, putting them up in the common dump sites. Can you tell me about that? How's that gone? So we've got cameras. We've put some of them up. Uh, it doesn't always work that way. Um, you know, sometimes you can get people on dump sites. Sometimes you can't. Um, you know, one of the cameras that I I, I put up, well, one of the cameras was taken. So mm -hmm. <laughs> you put it up and the camera disappears. So there goes the evidence. Um, but we did K KKS Tactical, Cassie, uh, Cassie and Dave Premack. They jumped in with a number of cameras uh, as donations. So now, and, and when we finally wanted to actualize that, we were kind of in the, into the latter part of the fall. So our plan was let the winter go by, some great sites show up, believe it or not, over the winter. And uh, we'll get back out in the spring and we've got a fairly good, healthy stock of, uh, of, of cameras to get started. But it's the enforceability part. So we have to work with the CO service to make sure that we do that in a way that they can still execute um, on on their mandate and still make it stick. Um, we've had people that have had videos of people dumping and it hasn't been enough to prosecute. Yeah, we have a different viewpoint on that because I love when it comes to dumpers, like this is where I get really angry and I'm not <laughs> shy to social media shame someone. So I've used my social media reach to publicly post people I've caught dumping boats on Tabor Mountain yeah. and had their children phoning me from the Okanagan to say, can you please take my parents off of social media? We're getting calls from across Canada and I'm like, good. good. Yeah, yeah. You tell your parents <laughs> tell your parents to suck it they yeah. shouldn't be dumping boats on my mountain so with that said say jack from down the street at Tabor mountain goes ahead and dumps a boat and a bunch of trash and gets caught what are the ramifications um it would depend i mean the ceos will will try to prosecute as long as they can they can catch him in the act it's easier but they can't do it by hearsay i mean when we when we do cleanups we'll get you know, if there's something to identify somebody, mail, whatever, uh, prescription medication. And in some cases, you, you might even get drive, uh, actual ID driver's license and stuff. It's like, yeah, this is the guy. And that's the address. And then they'll say, yeah, well, somebody stole my garbage. Right? Yeah. Unless you catch them in the act, the COs find it very difficult to, to issue any kind of a, a, a citation that sticks. The other part of it, to be fair to them, and we find this the same in if I if I cross over into just back into the hunting world, uh, when people do things, uh, whether it's poaching animals uh, or shooting out of season, to me the fine the, the, the fines aren't punitive, they're not stiff enough, and the fine for dumping should be three or four or five or a hundred times what it is. Because if I give somebody a hundred dollar or a two hundred dollar fine for dumping, I might dump again. If I give you a three thousand dollar fine for dumping. A, you're probably going to court to try to fight it. Good for you. 
but you are way, way, way more likely not to want to venture that in. It, they're just, they're not meaningful. And the, and the CEO service has been pretty honest with me that you give a guy a $100 fine, he's dumping again. Yeah, and it, I guess that's the bottom line is, but you know, as we have this conversation, I think the critical thing is you're one of the things you're most known for is being a hunter because you post so prolifically about hunting. But I think people listening should start to get a sense of the reason why I wanted to have a conversation with you is you're passionate about cleaning up the community. You've got this information in your head because you're so heavily involved in it. You're one of the people solely responsible for with Spruce City Wildlife giving salmon a chance to repopulate the upper Fraser because we had a rock slide, which is well known across Western British Columbia that completely blocked the entire salmon run from being able to go. Have they cleaned that up yet? Is that? I think uh, Big Bar has, uh, there's been a fair amount of uh, natural passage that's been um, uh, completed so that the fish are able to get up without just using fish ladders and some of the weirs and stuff they were using and then the the fish cannon or the whoosh. Um, So there is some natural fish passage. The problem is a lot of that came still way too late in the season. Uh, you get those runs early, they pool in below that. Uh, it was still difficult. And with this year's heavy rain, there was a lot of water flowing down that canyon. Um, so it made it fairly difficult. We had some fairly frustrating results. Um, it's the most amount of salmon eggs we've harvested. Um, but unfortunately, a couple of those on the Indaco in particular, which is a functionally extinct run, that's the one that we had used cryogenically frozen milt. Uh, with Carrier Sakani Tribal Council and their fisheries program. That's our partner in that project. Uh, the female that we did get eggs from, they were too small. And uh, from, a, uh, from a motility standpoint, they actually found that a lot of the salmon that bore eggs, the eggs were too small. And the survivability, regardless of whether we caught them or they were in the river, uh, they probably weren't going to fare very well. So we've, we've really effectively lost a second year of a run. Um, not that some salmon didn't procreate, for sure they did, but it, it still, it was a fairly catastrophic year for salmon. Do you think you do enough having, listing all of that, then there's the philanthropy you do aside from that? Do you think you do enough? Is there something more you want to do? Like if you could say, ah, I really wish I could accomplish this, what would it be? For me, the, there, there's a couple of things. There's more to be done on the wildlife side. Uh, there's a lot more to be done. And what I mean by that specifically though, is I, I need to, to take the, a person that's an anti-hunter, I'm not interested in trying to convert them, right? Just like they're probably not interested in trying to convert, maybe they are, but I, I, it's, it's wasted effort to try to get me off of that. I'm not gonna not hunt, right? I'm also not interested in trying to convince them otherwise. It's the people that are the uninitiated and the people that don't have an opinion. There are people that I would like to bring into a better understanding of, of, of hunting and angling and its role in the world um, and try to bring more people into it um, and, and accept it as a tradition. And if that means, that doesn't mean putting a gun in their hand like somebody like you, Scott. I'm not trying to put a gun in their hand and say, come and kill something. I'm just saying, hey, I'd like to be able to facilitate a discussion and give you an experience or a perspective I think there's work to be done on that side that when you said that we have a public relations problem, we do. We don't, we aren't very good communicators about what it is that's important to us, about the things that are, that make us tick and the reasons we do what we do. Um, it's, it, it's too often reduced to very simple moments, to the big kabang and then some picture of a dead thing. Um, and there's way more to it than that. That's where for me personally, that's where there needs to be work done. 
in a local community sense, I, I'm going to wage a serious war on dumping. I don't know what that looks like, Dave. I guess you and I are going to have to get on the regional district. <laughs> um, there, I, I, I want to wage a serious war on dumping. I want to wage a fairly serious war, uh, however that has to happen, on trying to get um, some higher um, fines applied uh, to the legal take of wildlife. Um, I want it to be so it costs people real money. And if there was jail time, I'd 100% be up for that. I don't think I'll meet the muster of doing that. So there's there's definitely some, there's there's things that I want to continue to push at. How about then, instead of a fine for dumping, you get a reward? And that reward is, you know Dan Gallo, the arm wrestling champion of yeah. the Canada? <laughs> you get a 20-minute headlock from Dan Gallo <laughs> for dumping. That's the reward. It's no longer a fine. Yeah, I, I dig it. I dig it. So, yes. Has there been a big uptick in hunting licenses or just people who yeah. are interested in to get into hunting once COVID arrived? There's, Yeah, I think what we have seen, there's definitely been a higher level of issuance, probably just from people that were that are hunting or people that are... Um, maybe they're not diehards, but people that probably grabbed more opportunity. So maybe they only ever hunted moose in this year. It's like, well, you know, moose population's down. I might travel to try to get some deer. Um, probably a little bit more on bear hunting and stuff as people started. I have a lot of people that rounded the corner on bear meat that probably didn't hunt bears before. And once they got their brain around it and they've tried it, they're like, oh, it's actually quite remarkable. I, I never let anyone taste it. I never let anyone know what they're tasting. I always just say, do you want some pepperoni? Yeah. And then give them a bite. And they're always like, that is amazing pepperoni. And I'm like, you just ate bear. And what you, what you found universally in North America is there's been an increase in license issuance in every state, in every province on some level. And there's been a, there's been a small move in the amount of people that probably wanted to apply for core courses and stuff. But it's been difficult for them to facilitate. Where we've seen the biggest growth in the last five years in the hunting communities in women. Great. So, yeah. We always ask a couple questions. There's a couple questions we've asked everybody. I think we should ask a couple of those really quickly. So the first one I'm going to ask um, is people in Canada, if you could talk to any Canadian, that if you could have an interview with any Canadian you wanted, alive or dead, what Canadian would you pick to talk to? Any Canadian, alive or dead? Hmm. Yeah. Any Canadian. Well, do you know any? No. Um, there, there'd be a couple. Uh, one, I'd really like to talk to Dan Aykroyd. Hmm. I'd a hundred percent like to have a great conversation with Dan Aykroyd. Have you listened to Dan Aykroyd's podcast with Joe Rogan? No, I have not, and it, I have not yet. It is one hundred percent crazy. Uh, like he, he talks about uh, extra like terrestrials. He talks about ghosts. He believes in all of it he believes in every conspiracy theory imaginable i think he probably started most of them but it was a wild three-hour conversation with dan Aykroyd and rogan he talked about everything from writing ghostbusters to his new vodka line of like skull-shaped vodka that he invested in it's a fascinating listen or watch if you're on on youtube and that's a hundred percent reason that's a, that's the number one reason why you got to have a conversation with dan Aykroyd. plus the guy was around john belushi i mean and i yeah. gotta know what that life was like man so yeah Dan Aykroyd would be one of my favorites. Yeah, huh. we wow. have to get him on the show. <laughs> we, Michael J. Fox is our our goal for episode one hundred. Dan Aykroyd will be episode ninety nine. Is it appetizer? Yeah, yeah. It's an appetizer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, heroes. Uh, can you name a couple people that you would identify as heroes? They can be local people that you look up to and respect, uh, or you can name one or two. You know, bigger. 
Uh, I think well, I, I think honestly for me, there's a couple people. Um, Steve Ranella would absolutely be one. Uh, he's been a game changer for me in how on how I how I see the the thing that I love the most, how I see my recre. It's not just my recreation. It's become it's a lot of how I define myself. Um, so, so Steve Ranella would certainly be one of them. And he's the uh, host of a show called well, Meat, Meat Eater, Eater for people who don't understand. Yeah. And he really discusses on a weekly basis this concept of sustainable hunting, the ethics behind it, yeah. uh, the whole debate of eating. What he even shows how you harvest and how you eat the animal. And, and that's on Netflix, right? Yeah, you'll find it on Netflix and then the Meat Eater podcast. Uh, you'll find Steve Ranella hunts with Joe Rogan and you'll, you'll see that quite a bit. He's the one that got Joe Rogan into hunting. Yeah. Have you ever done bow hunting? That's uh, yeah, Rogan's. I started actually, I started with it in, I started hunting as a bow hunter uh, and I migrated away from it over time. But yeah, I definitely started that way. Who are some local heroes to you? Uh, local heroes. Well, yeah. you've always been one, buddy. <laughs> you two, actually, to, to, be, to, to be fair, both of you guys have done, I think you guys have done just a, a remarkable job um, hell yeah is a giant feather in both of your caps. But when I look at people like you guys, I put you guys right up there with guys like Selen, you know, um, people like Donna Flood, who's done a great job with hospice. Um, but, and, and, you know, right now my, my, my hunting partner, Mark Newdorf is number one with a bullet right now, only because of what he pulled off in six days. Um, and I, and I, he's always had that level of resource. Uh, and I am just beyond compelled and blown away by what he just accomplished. He, he, he is, I don't know if you've met Mark Newdorf, but to get an opportunity, head over and meet him over at Wood Wheaton. He's one of the most exceptional human beings you've ever met because he has this insane ability to, within 30 minutes of talking to you, make you feel like you're in his family and like you're one of the most important people in the world yep. to him. And so just that's that's the only way i could define him he does that with his social media posts i'll read one of his posts and you can just like feel the passion he puts into those posts right which is a reason why he was able to raise over a quarter of a million dollars with that that energy of his mark Mark gets it mark really does and i mean and and we have lots of i mean and i'm i'm selling a whole bunch of people short this community is just filled with a whole bunch of them and you know i i would tell you this if if i had to (laughs) if you want to just talk about like a heroic community, um, I couldn't have I couldn't have picked any place on the map for for my life to come together the way that it has. Like I pinch myself every day. The fact that I had that conversation with Craig Wood, you know, in 2014, that led me here. Like my life has unfolded in a way I never ever would have imagined. And if 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 I would have known Prince George would have delivered this kind of life, I would have moved here 20 years ago. And if it, there was a price to pay it, I would have paid 10 times the price to come here. So We that, need to get Christina Dahl on the phone with Move Up Prince George and be like, we have your new poster boy. <laughs> <laughs> Recruitment strategy. <laughs> Actually, it's funny, Don, because lots of the times where we've seen each other, it's been at the crack of dawn with you climbing up the cut banks. <laughs> yeah. are, are you still training using the cut uh, banks? I hurt my knee a little bit. Uh, this uh, Coming out of COVID, I was really struggling. Uh, I, I, I think I might have had it in Jan- in, uh, in March. But whatever I had, it just kicked the crap out of me. And I ended up having a bit of a slip and fall. I was doing uh, the cut banks with a 40 pound pack and I took a couple of tumbles and my knee hasn't been the same. So I'm like on again, off again, on again. So was uh, that coming down? Coming down, yeah. So you can actually roll oh, yeah. and get some speed. I realized how much speed you could get. So I didn't post that, thankfully, but uh, my knee's been a bit of a problem since then. 
So I've been a little bit, uh, I, I've been a little bit tentative with that, but it is, uh, it's on my list of things to get back to. Actually, I prefer doing it as it gets colder outside. I love it when the snow hits. So it'll be, I'll be back up on the cut bank. We'll see each other again. Good. So. <laughs> awesome. I have another hunting question and, and I'm going to target when we, when we release this podcast, I'm going to do some targeted Facebook posts across Canada targeting hunting. So we're actually going to have that interest where a lot of hunters from across the nation will be able to, to tune in to this episode. One thing I want to ask is just living in Northern British Columbia, or even just within city limits in Prince George, you're never far from wildlife. No. It's always at your doorstep. Can you talk about maybe some of the experiences you've had running into wildlife around this region? And a follow-up question, have you ever ran into a wolverine before? Because I know those are extremely elusive. Uh, yes, 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 and yes. Uh, so yes, I have, uh, we have a bear that lives up near us in the heart. Um, there's two different ones. Uh, so we had bears lots this year. Um, I have a fox that lives underneath my shop in the back, uh, in the backyard. Uh, he's a frequent flyer. I usually see him if I'm, if I'm out the door before five and on those cut banks mornings, pretty good chance I'm going to see him in the backyard. We got a new resident, uh, which is a coyote that uh, started living across from us. There's a little green space. I don't think the neighbor's dog likes him, but I think he's found a den. So, uh, yeah, we have wildlife in our yard on a fairly regular basis. For me personally, um, I have had uh, a couple of encounters. My uh, One of my hunting partners and good friends from Spruce, Steve Hamilton, and I, we ran into a wolverine this spring. Um, so that was pretty cool. But I've, I've had lots of up-close uh, interactions with a lot of different things. Um, but I've had this year in particular, I've had two seriously close encounters with grizzly bears um, while I was out hunting that uh, I'm glad they ended the way that they did. Um, but I got real lucky in the one uh, that it didn't go another way. Otherwise, it could have ended up like Cam and Heidi Hill. Uh, and I'm glad that I didn't have that. And then uh, less than a, a week after I had another up close and personal one that I wasn't expecting. And those were both seven and a half foot plus big boar grizzly bears and in both cases i was less than 30 yards from them so we have a so i had a wolverine encounter this fall also hunting um walked right in front of us as we were walking down the trail to go walk a cup block and he was maybe 20 feet from us and turned and looked at us and then shot into the trees and i it was surreal because i couldn't believe i saw wolverine yeah all that time in the bush you rarely see them yeah and uh the black bear won't leave my yard in Tabor. We have a black bear that stays in everyone's yard. I was walking down the hill to go put the dock in and I looked to the left and it's no further away than the distance across this table, six feet away, just looking at me. And I just continued walking because I didn't know what else to do. Just walked right past it and it just walked me like right past it and I went down to the lake, then had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jumped on the pontoon boat and was like, oh, I better back out here. Uh, I know you can have some some pretty close encounters with black bears around the community it's it's grizzlies that really scare me and we saw one in, in fang mountain we we're hiking fang mountain in september yeah this yeah, past that's year that's true actually it was right behind us on yeah. the other side of the hill behind us as we sat at the top of the hill we're at the summit oh, wow. just about to sit down and have some lunch and bite to eat and all of a sudden we look behind us and probably about half a kilometer away is this grizzly bear and half a kilometer seems like a long distance but when that grizzly starts running it can like be there. that yeah. In seconds. So yeah. we quickly packed up. There was another group that we quickly gave them the heads up and then we all kind of made our way down yeah. together. But things, when you're that susceptible at the top of a summit of a mountain, things can change rather quickly, right? Another instance was we were hiking Mount Robson this past August and right in front of us, this gigantic porcupine ran right across the trail. And those things are massive. Yep. 
Big, bigger than people think. Yeah, porcupines are one of my favorite things because they're so, they're so chill, right? They're so chill. Well, Whatever they don't have like, to do anything. They don't have to do anything. They just sit and shake a little bit. Um, I, you know, one of the, I think, and Scott, you, uh, you you guys spend a lot of time in the backcountry, and and I, I think it's one of the things that some people. There's a joke at the dealership. I've been here for just about coming into year number six now, but there's. If you're within 300, 400 kilometers of Prince George, there's not too many forestry roads I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know every lake, but I know lots of trail systems. I know the area really well. But I'm surprised how many people have been here the whole lives and they don't go to some of these places, right? Yeah. There's waterfalls and lakes that they haven't been to. Um, they don't go out to, you know, if you get out on the Sandy Forestry Road in the McGregor Valley, you know, just out pat where Kittle Falls is, I mean, if you want to see grizzly bears, all you need to do is just spend an afternoon there. You're going to see some. If you just want to know what that experience is like. Um, but bears and sheep and goats and, I mean, we wolverines um, and deer of all kinds. I mean, we have got this remarkable, like this remarkable amount of wildlife around us. Um, how you would not want to, within an, less than an hour of here. I mean, in I, I've been less than a half an hour in front of a grizzly bear in, in Prince George. So, I mean, they're all around us. There's wildlife all around us. There's some stunning vistas around us. And, you know, it's like, like my wife said, we used to come to BC to go to Kelowna because you wanted to go see something, you know, beautiful. And for me, it's like people like, man, you just live in paradise. And I was yeah. like, yeah, I live in Prince George. I live in, I, I live in paradise. It's all around us. There's a lot of people here who spend their whole life wanting to get out. And then there's perspectives like that. You know, as someone, I've been very fortunate to have been able to travel. I never had kids, so, you know, working several jobs, I was always able to afford to travel. And uh, I've been all over the world, and there's no place I would choose to live except here. Yeah. And you forget that you are living in paradise because that's one of the benefits of COVID. Once it hit, it forced British Columbians, British Columbians to explore their own province, where there is before almost this agreement that you to really go on vacation you have to leave the province a hundred percent yeah right and i would say my statistics could be way off on this but i would probably say that 30 to 40 percent of people living in prince george have never been north of chetwin before easily yeah. that's some beautiful country too yeah absolutely gorgeous country yeah don i think we chewed up an hour of your time right. and uh i think that uh we got some really good perspective from you which i think is invaluable and i hope people uh, enjoy the story and I think you were one of the most articulate human beings I've ever heard discuss the broader picture of why hunting matters and so I really appreciate hearing that because I haven't actually heard you articulate that before and it was powerful in my opinion of course I support hunting but you put it so well in a way that I could not do so I really appreciate it and if anybody gets anything out of that I hope that one piece yeah at least is heard as to a justification for why people should look further into the subject. Yeah, I agree. And if there's one thing I want to add to that, Dave, it's that after listening to the latest episode in your podcast, your guest talked about the importance of being used to the bear spray that you might be carrying or being used to the, the gun that you might be carrying when you're out in the back, because it made me think like, when's the last time I actually practiced using the bear spray that I carry carry with me on every single hike yep. over four years? Yeah. Who knows if it even works properly anymore? Yep. So uh, yeah. if there's one thing I wanted to compliment your podcast is that it's going to force me to 
go out and a test the bear spray or potentially buy some new bear spray and familiarize myself with actually being able to use it properly. I feel that's very important for a lot of people out there enjoying the the backcountry around. Oh, however you enjoy it, yeah. I'm not, well. I'm glad. I mean, that's a that's a benefit I didn't see coming. So make people think about bear spray. That's well, even there better. You go. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for having me. That was awesome. Thank you, Don Willimont. Everybody, go buy a Wood Wheaton car. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Thanks, guys.